Turn with me, please, to the book of Romans. We're going to start in chapter 6, in verse 12. Uh, I must confess that much to my wife's uh, disappointment, I'm not a fan of musicals. I know. <laughs> hiss, hiss. Uh, sometimes I break down and I do watch them with her, but there's one in particular that I, is, I actually have a favorite musical, and that's Les Mis. I've seen Les Mis four times. And I've seen the movie, I bought the movie, and I've seen the movie three times. I've seen it, uh, the play, I've actually seen the play on Broadway before. I, I absolutely love that musical because it develops these enormously significant themes of law and grace. The two main characters represent law and grace. Uh, Chavert is the law. He is an officer of the law. He has lived according to the law. He has carried out the law his entire life. He is unbending. Jean Valjean is the other character, and he represents grace. Early in his life, uh, he was impoverished, and in his poverty, he stole bread to feed his family, and he was caught and arrested and thrown into prison, hard labor, for decades, just because he stole bread to feed his family. Eventually he gets out, but he is supposed to report in any city that he lives in because he's a criminal. A criminal who served his sentence, but nevertheless a criminal. Known by a number, and he's to report in to the authorities. He decides eventually, though, that he's not going to report to the authorities any longer because as he goes to city after city, he can't find work, he can't find acceptance, he can't fit in to society, and so he decides to go underground. He, He hides his identity. And lives as if he's a man who's never been convicted of a crime. Well, uh, he lives very successfully. He does very well for himself. And he begins to do well for others as well. And he extends grace and compassion and kindness and goodness. But uh, Javert knows that he's not checked in. That he's now living in hiding. And he makes it his personal quest to find him and to punish him. And to put him back under the law. To put him back in prison. Eventually he finds him. Javert finds Valjean, but Valjean overpowers him, and he has the opportunity to kill him. And in killing him, he would no longer be chased. He wouldn't have to live in hiding from the law any longer, but instead, he shows grace. Let's him live. Javert has never experienced grace before. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to respond. But he knows he has the law, and so he begins to chase again. Finally, he finds Jean Valjean, and he captures him. He puts him in shackles. And he's prepared to take him to prison. He says this, I am the law, and the law is not mocked. It is either Valjean or Javert. It's either the law or it's grace. It is a pity that the law doesn't allow me to be merciful. I've tried to live my life without breaking a single rule. Then he takes off the shackles. He puts the shackles on himself. And he tells Valjean, you're free. And then you know what he does next? He commits suicide. Because now he's a lawbreaker. He set a criminal free. And the law can't bend. Someone must be punished for the crime. And so he jumps off the bridge and he kills himself. Because it's either law or grace. Okay? It's either Valjean or Javert. The, the two cannot coexist with one another. And that is... Essentially, the message of the book of Romans. 
Remember, we've been talking about uh, Romans last week. We, re- we reviewed and said it's about the righteousness of God. God is absolutely righteous. He's perfectly righteous. All that he says, all that he does, all that he feels, all that he thinks is right. God is the standard. And an implication of that is, since we are not right, we are not perfect, God must punish sin. And in this respect, the righteousness of God is unbending. And law is an expression of the righteousness of God. The wages of sin is always death. But the beauty that Paul expresses to us through Romans is that God is also righteous in that he has punished sin, our sin, in Christ. So that we don't have to bear the weight of that punishment ourselves. God can be righteous or just in punishing our sin in Christ and therefore declaring us to be in right relationship with him even though we're sinners, even though we're completely broken and don't measure up to the standard. That is justification and we receive it by faith. It's just a gift. It can't be anything other than faith because we simply do do not have any resources to bring. There's nothing that we offer to God that is worthy of putting us into right relationship with him. And so we receive it as a gift. That's the gospel. Justification by faith. But Paul goes on and he says, God is not through with us. It's not just that he wants to put us into a right relationship with him, change our status. He also wants to change our character and make us right or make us more and more and more like Jesus Christ. That is why Christ rescued us, not just to get us into right relationship, but to transform us, to remold us. And that is the topic of Romans 6 through 8. He summarizes in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, therefore, since we have been justified and we are now released from the penalty and power of sin, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. And the natural inclination of his audience would be to say, just with us, well, how, Paul? How do we present ourselves to God? And remember, the early church was populated first by Jews, and then second by those who were proselytes, those who were God-fearers. They'd been attracted through the law. And then they heard about Jesus as Messiah. And in fact, all of the pagan world had been exposed to the law. They knew that it was a beautiful thing, a remarkable thing. And so the natural inclination would be, Paul, how do we present ourselves to God? Do we present ourselves to God by presenting ourselves through the law? And he says, sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but you're under grace. You don't present yourselves to God by presenting yourselves through the law. And he explains what he means by that at the beginning of chapter 7. Now, before we get into that, though, in chapter 7, uh, let's do a little background. What does Paul mean when he talks about law? In your translation, sometimes it'll be small l, or law, capital L. In chapter 7, he uses the word law 23 times in 25 verses. Okay? That's the topic of chapter 7. He's talking about law. Basically, the word means this. It means a guiding principle. Look at chapter 7, verse 22. Paul says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, that is the guiding principle of God in the inner man, but I see a different law 
in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Okay, four times in two verses. And he uses it actually in a couple different ways. The fundamental meaning is a guiding principle. It could be the law of God. It could be the law of sin. God guiding me or sin guiding me. And you're going to have to be careful because Paul moves back and forth between this concept of law or in the beginning of the chapter, specifically, the law of God is expressed through Moses and given to the people of Israel. The law of God given through Moses. And for his readers, they would think of a few things. They would think first of the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Moses is credited with writing all of these first five books, except a little commentary at the end about his own death. That's Moses. Now, there's a lot of narrative within the Pentateuch, and so they would think not so much about the narrative, but they would think about the social, moral, cultic, or uh, worship, and sacrificial laws, the specific laws, commandments, ordinances within those five books. And then more specifically, they would think about the Ten Commandments as a summary statement of the law of God. This is what would come to their minds. Now, remember, the law given through Moses is a covenant, but it's not the first covenant that Israel received first covenant that they received in which God took them to be his own people was the Abrahamic covenant. Mosaic covenant was given about 1500 BC, uh, Abrahamic covenant about 2000 BC. God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you uh, to follow me, leave your family and come to the land that I will give you. And I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a seed or a family and I'm going to bless you materially and spiritually. And then through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And God formed with him an irrevocable covenant. One that God must fulfill because God has given his word. He has promised this. This is where every Jew traces his racial, ethnic identity and his spiritual hope back to Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Because Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and all Jews ethnically came from these 12 sons. But you remember, they weren't in the promised land when Moses was born. Because of a famine, 400 years earlier, they had left. They had gone down to Egypt. And through Joseph's wisdom, the whole family had been rescued from starvation. But then after 400 years, there was a new Pharaoh and he didn't remember Joseph and he wasn't mindful of all the good that Joseph had done for Egypt. And so he looked out at this family that was now 2 million people and growing every day and becoming more powerful and strong. And he said, you know, they could rise up in rebellion against us if we were attacked by another neighboring power. We need to subjugate them, make them slaves. And so the Jews became slaves in Egypt. And they cried out to God and they said, God, rescue us, redeem us. And God did with a powerful hand through the event of the Passover, he rescued the entire nation out of Egypt. That was a picture of God making a sacrifice of the firstborn in the place of his people. And he rescued and redeemed them and he brought them into the wilderness. They were a redeemed people. They were God's people now. And in the wilderness, he gave them the second covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which formed them into a nation. And they became the people of God. And God said, here's the relationship between these two covenants. I have promised you unconditionally, irrevocably, I will bless the seed of Abraham. But you and your generation, do you want to enjoy those blessings? 
then obey me. And if you obey me, I'll bring you into the land. You'll have fruitfulness in the land. Your animals will bear. Your people will bear. The land will yield its produce for you. You will have protection from all your enemies as long as you obey my statutes, my ordinances. You worship me correctly. You'll be blessed. On the other hand, if you disobey me, I'll discipline you. Your crops won't yield. Attacks will come in from uh, outside forces. And you keep disobeying, keep disobeying. I'll actually, actually, I'll take you off the land. You will be cursed. You'll be removed from the land. My redeemed people. So if your generation wants to enjoy my blessings on the land, live according to the law. And so the law had governed them as a nation for their entire existence as a nation. And now this young Pharisee who has believed that Jesus is the Messiah is out there preaching and saying, no, the law is no longer the governing principle of our lives. Can you imagine For 1,500 years, they had lived under the law, and now Paul is saying, no, no, it's no longer applicable to you directly. You don't live under the law. What in the world? Paul, you're going to have to defend yourself on that. Because as they conceived of the law, it was the greatest gift that mankind had ever received. Not just the Jews, but it was a gift to all of mankind. David said in the Psalms, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Your statutes, they're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb, God, your law is valuable to us. Why would we want to live under any other guiding principle? Back in Deuteronomy, Moses was given these words to pass on to the people. It said, Moses had finished speaking all the words to Israel. He said to them, take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land, which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. This is your life. And this is how you live. This is the governing principle that's going to put all of life in order for you. And now, Paul, you're saying we're no longer under the law. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says this, the commandment which was to result in life, as it said in Deuteronomy, instead produced or resulted in death for me. Okay, Paul, we're no longer under the governing principle of the law, the law that God gave. And somehow the righteous law that God gave, you're saying, is attached to sin and it doesn't produce life, it produces death. You must explain. (laughs) And so that's what he does, Romans chapter 7. Hey, Romans chapter 7, Paul's going to give an explanation of the believer's relationship to the law. And he's going to answer the question in two parts. First, how were we freed from the law? And then second, why were we freed from the law? Why was it necessary? So I want you to read with me chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren... For I'm speaking to those who know the law. And remember again, Roman church would have had Jews in it. It would have had proselytes in it who were very familiar with the law. And even the Romans themselves would have known about the law of God. They would have had a familiarity. In fact, the early preachings that would have happened in their church would have been from Old Testament. Much of it from law. So he says, speaking brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband, While he is living, 
But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. How are we freed from the law? The answer is through identification with Jesus Christ. We're identified with Jesus Christ in his death, and his death was to sin, but his death was also to the law. It was identification with Christ that freed us. Now, Paul is stating here, uh, first, a principle. Uh, He's not talking about marriage and divorce, per se. He's not expounding the laws on marriage and divorce just for the sake of talking about marriage and divorce. Uh, He does that in other places in his writings, 1 Corinthians 7, for example. Here he is stating a principle, and he's using the laws concerning marriage to illustrate his point. His point is this, the law is binding. And so he uses marriage law to illustrate how binding, in fact, the law is. Okay, if a woman is married to a man, she's stuck with that man for her entire life according to the law, and there's no, no compromise in that. Okay? The, the law is binding in this respect. Now, if he dies, then she's freed, but that's the only thing that will free her. If while he's still living and she marries someone else, she'll be called an adulteress. He says the law is binding. The law is uncompromising. Hey, imagine if uh, I married Tristy and we got back from our honeymoon. I said, honey, you know, that was a wonderful honeymoon. I really enjoyed our honeymoon. That was, that was fantastic. That was great. Uh, tonight, I'm going to go out with my old girlfriends. Because they couldn't come to the wedding and they want to hear about our wedding. They, they kind of want to know what your dress was like and that kind of thing. So um, if you don't mind, stay at home and I'm going I'm to go out with my old girlfriends, okay? <laughs> no. Can we negotiate? What if I don't go out with all my old girlfriends? What if I just go out with one of my old girlfriends? No. The law is uncompromising. The law is binding. The law is unmerciful. The law is unforgiving. Okay? There's no room. There's no negotiation here. This is the law. And if you break it, you're labeled. Boom, that's it. That's it. Okay? That, that's, that's Paul's point. That's Paul's point. Therefore, we must be freed from it, right? Because it's binding and unmerciful. How? Through death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus Christ. So here's his proposition. We died to the law. Notice he switches the metaphor here. It's not the spouse who died. Who died? We died. But we didn't just die. We were also raised up. So that we wouldn't have to stay married to the law We died to the law, but now we can be married to Christ. We're not married to the rules any longer. Now we are married and in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our entire relationship with God has changed because the old relationship was broken through death and burial and resurrection and a new relationship has formed. Look with me again, chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, notice the parallelism, chapter 6. Go back to chapter 6 and verse 4. Paul says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, 
through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The parallelism uh, between chapters 6 and 7, it's exact. Chapter 6 is talking about our relationship to sin. Chapter 7, our relationship to the law. And for a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a new relationship to sin. Chapter 6, a new relationship to the law. Chapter 7. Sin bore fruit for death in our lives, chapter 6. Consequently, we needed to die to sin. We needed to to break that necessary bondage to sin. As a result, we're freed from sin. Sin no longer rules in our lives. We don't have to say yes to sin. We're not under its penalty. We're not under its power. Why? So that we would serve in newness or bear fruit for God. Chapter 7. The law bore fruit for death. Consequently, we need to break that relationship and die to the law. Having died to the law, we are freed from law. Law no longer rules over us. Why? Again, same terminology. Paul says, so that we might serve in newness, that is, bear fruit for God. In other words, it was not enough for us to be united with Christ in his death. That paid the penalty of sin, but the resurrection of Christ proved God accepted Christ's sacrifice It proved that God has the power over death and that God can grant life from death so that we can now live in newness, that is, live as God designed us to live. Right now, we can begin to experience the resurrection power or life of Jesus Christ. Or to put it in the broadest biblical terms, we were made for the garden, people, okay? We were made for the garden. We were made for intimate relationship with God. We were made to walk in the coolness of the day and speak to God and hear his voice and enjoy him and him enjoy us. That is why we were designed. But rules cannot produce relationship. Rules are just that. They're just rules. There is not life in the rule. And God made us so that we could experience life. Look with me in chapter 7, verse 6. But now, having been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Grace and law don't mix. Paul said there there, there are two ways in which you can approach God, so to speak. One is through rules, and one is through a relationship. And one must give way to the other. Both systems cannot remain in place. And what Paul is saying is, grace is not just a better way, it's the only way to enjoy intimacy of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, that leads us to the second point. Why were we freed from the law? Read with me chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Verse 12. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Uh, Paul goes to great lengths to make this point. The law is good. The problem is not with the law. The law itself 
is good. The law was good in actually in many ways. The, the law was, for Israel, it was their national constitution. There were civil laws, social laws that bound them together as a community, showed them how to relate to one another, how to relate to the nations around them. Also, of course, as a theocracy, how to relate to God. Okay, this was, this is their constitution. They became a nation on the day God gave them the Mosaic covenant and moved them into then the land. They had a land, they had a people, they had a constitution, they had a governing policies. That made them a nation. Okay, now they're, they're the people of God, the nation of God. It was good in that respect. The law was good in that it revealed the holiness of God. Revealed all of God's character, but particularly God's holiness. He's different, he's distinct, he's set apart. It revealed a lot about them and how they could be holy people. It revealed a lot about Jesus Christ. A foreshadowing of Christ, this uh, Passover experience was a foreshadowing of Christ. The sacrifice of a firstborn in place of the family. And because of the blood, death passes over. And we're told uh, by Paul in Corinthians that Christ is our Passover lamb. And if you look at each of the feasts and festivals and the the sacrificial system, it prefigures Christ. There's so much that's good in the law. And specifically, Paul says here, one of the good aspects of the law is it makes sin clear or obvious. Again, chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, no, the law is not sin. May it never be. Don't misunderstand me, Paul says. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That was good, Paul said. (laughs) Coveting's bad. Not coveting is good. And when I heard that law, thou shalt not covet, I realized that's a bad thing and I shouldn't do it. And that's good information to have. That's a good law. Thou shalt not covet. There's nothing wrong with that commandment. You shouldn't covet. My kids were little. I said to them, don't touch the stove. That's a good law. They're walking over toward the stove. They're very curious about the stove. They want to touch the stove. And I say, thou shalt not touch the stove. Lest I be burned. You know, you're going to get burned. Don't do it. That's a good law. Nothing bad with my law, right? If you think of sin, imagine sin as a cancer. There are many parallels. Sin is a cancer. Sin is like disease. An MRI is like the law. Looks inside and it sees cancer. It sees disease. It, it, It points it out. It makes it clear. It doesn't create disease. It doesn't create sickness. But it makes it clear. It says that's where sickness is. And that's a good thing. If you're sick, you want to know where you're sick. Paul says the law is good. Don't misunderstand me. The law is good. However, uh, the law is limited. Okay? The law is limited. Read with me in chapter 7 and verse 5. Paul says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law... We're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Then over in verse 8, I should start in verse 7 again. I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. 
And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. The law became sin's tool. In other words, the law reveals sin, but then it entices sin, and then it condemns me for the sin that it enticed. And that's how the law functions within us. Uh, Last night, I was working on finishing up my slides, working on my notes, sitting at the dining room table. My kids came up. And they, you know, just curious, trying to get into my world. Hey, what are you, what are you preaching on tomorrow, Dad? We love your sermons. You know, I don't know what they want me to buy. But, um. <laughs> so while I'm talking about believers' relationship with the law, we're dead to the law. Stare at me for a minute. I said, you walk past a sign and it says, wet paint, do not touch. What do you want to do? They go, Touch it, of course. <laughs> so that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. That's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Wet paint, do not touch. Oh, I want to. I want to. Got to touch it. Something in me. Got to touch it. Trish says, I don't want to touch it. <laughs> but you're mature, honey. And that's the point. But there are others. We see a sign like that. I said, well, uh, you see a sign that says 55, and you say, but I could get away with 60 or 61, there's just something that the law entices. The sin uh, is revealed by the law, but then law entices and then condemns us for the very sin that was enticed by the law itself. I remember when I was in high school, um, some of my my buddies, we had our own Bible study. We didn't have have a college leader. We didn't have an adult leader. We're just doing this Bible study on our own. And, you know, it was very productive. We probably could have used some guidance but we got into our study and uh, somewhere our conversation turned to, to sin and to lust. And we decided, you know, lust is bad. Okay. Group of high school guys, right? Lust is bad. We shouldn't lust. You know, and some of our friends, they struggle with lust and we don't want to. So we should pray for them. And why don't we pray for ourselves at the same time? Let's pray for one another that we won't sin by lusting. How can we do that? How can we remind ourselves to pray for this? So we all had those little Casio watches, some of you remember, and, and uh, they had an hourly chime. So we turned the hourly chime on, so every hour on the hour, we'd be reminded, pray for each other, not to lust. So we get to school, 9 a.m. comes, we're sitting in our first class there, and you know, we stop and think about lust, right? <laughs> and then 10 o'clock comes, Think about lust. <laughs> 11 o'clock, lust. 12 o'clock, lust. Okay, we, we get to the end of the day. Uh, we're getting, getting, changing our clothes for practice. And we're sitting around, hey, how'd you do today? I go, Man, terrible. Thought about lust all day long. <laughs> Much worse than last week before we talked about it. What happened? What happened? The law, the law happened. The law is reminding us of sin every hour on the hour. Man. It's brutal. Did it change us? No, it didn't change us. Okay? The law is limited. It entices to sin. Further, the law can't justify us. The law can't justify us. Uh, Paul said it beautifully in Galatians chapter 3. 
If a law, any law, the best law, Mosaic was the best that ever been revealed, but if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. That is really Paul's point for Romans 1 through 4, the entire chapter, uh, all those chapters, 1 through 4, that whole section. Law cannot put you into a right relationship with God. It is powerless to do so. Chapters 5-ish, kind of, and 6 through 8, for sure, he's moving on and he's making a second point, and that is law can't sanctify us. Law can't change our character. Law can't make us more like Christ because law can't change our heart. Law can't change the inner man. Law can't change the inner man. From an external standpoint, we can measure up, but it can't change the internal man. In Deuteronomy, the Lord said to the people, he said, you know, this law I'm giving you today, it's not too difficult. It's not that difficult. You can do it. And don't say, wow, it's way up in heaven. We got to go find it and get it. No, I brought it to you. I put it right in front of you. It's right there. The problem is not that you cannot obey the law, but that you will not obey the law because of your heart. Because law can't change the heart. That's why Paul could say in Philippians, as to the law, I'm found blameless because I've kept all the external standards of the law. Paul said, you know, I, I kept that one about don't steal. But then in Romans, he says, don't covet. Ooh, actually, the more I heard that law, the more I wanted stuff that wasn't mine. Because stealing is external, and I'm doing pretty well on that. Probably all of us are doing pretty well on stealing and murdering and that kind of thing, right? But the internal change in the heart? Why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verse 18. A ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, stop right there. We would say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? Jesus doesn't say anything about that. What does he do? Instead, he points him back to the law. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. I'm blameless according to the law. I have kept all these things. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, Oh, by the way, one thing you still lack, just a little thing. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This verse has been so misunderstood by Christians for many, many years. It's Jesus saying to him, now, if you keep one more commandment, that is sell everything, then in fact, you will have earned eternal life. Is that what he's saying? Oh, Jesus is using the law like the MRI machine. And he's shining it on this man's life. And what does it reveal? It reveals covetousness. Covetousness. He wants something more than he wants Jesus. Paul will tell us later that covetousness, literally to have more, is idolatry. So when we covet, we break the first commandment, which is to have another God before God. 
which is really the essence of all the commandments. We've broken them because the heart has not been changed. What Jesus is doing is he's using the law to expose the fact that this man needs a heart change. He doesn't need to simply obey some external standards. He needs God to change his heart. This is what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He is expositing the law. He is showing how how the law exposes man's sin. He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, don't murder. And Jesus said, well, that's all well and good. I, I appreciate the fact that you haven't murdered. Keep on not murdering. That's great. Don't do that. But I say to you, don't be angry. Don't hate. Always forgive. And actually love your enemies and serve them and give to them and pour grace upon them. And we should all get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and say, I can't on my own. I can hang with that don't murder thing and that don't steal thing. But the depth of my heart. That's why Paul goes back in Romans 7 and he uses this commandment. Just the one he says, thou shalt not covet. Because it's a matter that reaches deep into the heart. Do you want anything in addition to or more than or in place of God? And his point is this. The law can't change the heart. Okay, the law can't change our character. We can externally conform ourselves to the law, but we can't have our heart changed. And he says this. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. The law is... Righteous and holy and good, but it's limited by us. Because there's something within us that when we hear the law, we want to do the opposite of the law. We want to break the law. Read with me in chapter 7 of Romans, verse 13. Paul says, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Is it the law's fault? No. It's not the fault of the law. May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that is the law, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. When he's talking about sin here in verse 13, he's talking about our nature to sin or our bent to sin. There's something in us that will always think about the option of living independently from God and want to pursue it. And law shows how utterly broken and sinful we are because we have sin in us, sin dwelling in me, the indwelling principle of sin. And the result of sin dwelling in us is this. First, we are vulnerable to temptation. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're always vulnerable. Second, we actually find pleasure in sin. Next week, we're going to talk about those two points. Why is it that we're so vulnerable, and why is it that we find pleasure in sin? There's a third point, though, too, and that is that we actually prefer rules over relationship. There's something in us that prefers the rules because uh, we can make the rules, or we can pick which rules we want to apply and which we don't want to apply. Uh, Rules are manageable, but relationships are complex. We can simplify the rules. But relationships, we cannot simplify. It's dynamic. And we can set up our list of rules in such a way that we can meet those rules. We can can fulfill this. And we can say, this is the standard of righteousness and I meet it. And we can then feel good about ourselves. And we can apply our standard to others. And we can feel bad about them and judge them. And we like that. That's what we call legalism. Legalism, it's a multi-headed monster. It can take the form of thinking that we can enter into a right relationship with God through what we do, begin that relationship by our works or by 
faith in Christ and what we contribute. That's legalism. Or legalism is uh, believing that we keep our relationship through what we do. If you know someone who's a believer in Jesus Christ, says, I'm a Christian, but I can know that I can lose my relationship by the things that I do, that's legalism. We keep our relationship with God because of the faithfulness of Christ, not because of our faithfulness, because Christ is always faithful and he's got us in his hand and he won't let us go. Legalism is thinking we can grow in maturity or grow in our intimacy with God through what we do in our own strength. That's legalism. Legalism is setting up our list of rules and evaluating others by our set of rules. All those things, Paul says, bring death. In other words, Paul says we are no longer under the law. He's talking about a system or a way of approaching a relationship with God. Certainly we're not under the law in terms of it's not our our national constitution because we're not a nation. We're not limited by ethnicity, socioeconomic status, geography. We're not a nation. So it's not our constitution. We don't need the sacrificial system because we have that in Christ. But what Paul's talking about here is here, we're not under these lists of rules as a way in which we approach God. Now, are the rules bad? No, in and of themselves, rules are not necessarily bad. Rules could be really good rules. The rules that God gave were good rules. But what's the motivation for obeying them and what's the strength through which or the power that animates us to obey them? In fact, Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to say we actually do fulfill the law through the power of God's spirit. We fulfill the principles of the law because God has caused us through his power to want to do them in order to enjoy our relationship with him. Not simply to meet the rules. Okay, let me illustrate, because I think an illustration will really help here. Uh, we spend billions of dollars every year on uh, educating students, public education. So why don't we cut the budget drastically and tell Eddie Colson, our superintendent, Eddie, instead, just buy a whole bunch of books and ship them to the kids' houses. Then you're done. You've educated, right? Because you've given them the information. They have the rules. Why do we spend so much money in the budget on the teachers? Well, because teachers animate the information, so to speak, right? Teachers create an environment in which there's relationship and there's dynamic and learning can occur. Now, the teachers may use the textbook, but the text is just dead words on a page. It comes to life in the context of this relationship and this interaction and this conveying person-to-person information so that it is absorbed and it changes the person. Textbooks may be wonderful, but they're just a tool. I'll give you another illustration. Um, actually talked to, at, at the table afterwards, talked to my son about this. Said, you know, someday soon, buddy, you know, he's, he's 10 years old. You're going to be 17. And I, man, it's already going so fast. And, and you're at 17, and then just a few short months, you'll be 18, and you're going to be out of my house. <laughs> Probably, hopefully. Uh, you're going to be out of my house, right? And I want you to be mature when you make that transition. And so when you're, you, you reach six, 15, 16, 17, I want to be stripping away the rules. I want to have fewer rules. I want you to want to do what's right because what's good has just become a part of you. 
And so what I have to say to you in the morning is, hey, Ben, do well. Ben, do what's right. Ben, make good choices. And I don't say, this is a good choice, this is a bad choice. Because when you hit 18, you're going to be gone, and you won't have my rules to guard and protect you, to direct you. You won't have them. And if they're not in you and just a part of you, then you're going to do whatever. And you're going to make foolish choices. See, when you reach that point, I want you to be mature. I want you to have an adult relationship with me. If you need my advice, you ask my advice. But you are responsible for your own decisions And you're making them well and wisely because you are mature. What does God want from us? He wants relationship. And he wants a mature relationship. And mature people don't need the rules because they live wisely. Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And he did it through identifying us with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that now we can begin to live that resurrection life and live well and live wisely and not simply live and measure ourselves or others according to a simplistic external list of rules and regulations, no matter how good that list may be. Or if I can summarize it for you. There is a law way to approach God and there is a grace way. In the law way, I rely upon myself and what I can accomplish and what I define as good and evil. That gives power, actually, to sin. And I'm enticed even by my own list and results in death. The grace way, I'm relying upon the Spirit. Am I active? Am I I energized? Am I putting in effort? Yes, I am energetically pursuing my dependence upon God's Spirit. The result is it gives power to righteousness and I experience life. And that's what God wants for us. He, he, he designed us for the garden, okay? for living in that richness of fellowship with him. So a couple application points before we leave. Uh, I want you to ask the spirit to examine your heart this week and to reveal to you, are you living under the law? In any manner, are you living under the law? Uh, it may be that you're trying to earn God's favor. Have you ever at any point in your time say, God, I thank you just for Christ. And that I have your favor or your grace because I have Christ. And I rest in that. Thank you, God, for Christ. Second, are you committed to rule keeping as evidence of a mature relationship with God? Might even be a really, really good list. But is that the evidence or is the evidence love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, love for God, love and sacrifice and service of others out of a pure heart. Third, do you evaluate others by standards that are simply, merely external and observable and stand in judgment on them? Is there any respect in which you're living under the law and under the law's domination? Paul would say that brings death and you've been freed from that so you can live God wants you to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, you have given us life and you've given us uh, life in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that um, you'd release us and give us freedom from the bondage of, of the power of sin in our lives and the power of law that entices sin within us. 
I pray, Father, that you create within us through the power of your spirit a longing to live with you in intimacy. Pray, Father, you give us wisdom to know how to do that. Pray, Father, as we continue down this path in Romans chapter 7, uh, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to understand how to live well and wisely with you. And Father, I pray as you create that maturity within us, you cause us to be attractive to others. You draw them to your son, Jesus Christ, through us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.